So welcome everybody to the next Hartman series that uh, I've been teaching. So for most of you, you know I was going to the Hartman Institute uh, twice a year. Um, and now with COVID, it's online and you all can access all these things online, all of these lectures, all of these classes online. Um, and so you got the link to Malila Helner Eshed's uh, talk that I'm going to be that we're going to be discussing today. Um, her source sheet is available through that link. So the the landing page that you have that Rebecca sent you that link right underneath the screen of where you push to watch. There's something that says sources, source sheet. So you can get the source sheet, um, but I'll I'll share mine, knowing that probably y'all don't have a computer up separately from your one. Right. That you so, um, so a lot of these lectures, the, the teachers prepared to give to the entire uh, thousands, literally thousands of people who have signed up for Hartman to watch and to participate this summer. Usually you have to fly to Jerusalem. They're not online. You fly to Jerusalem to the Hartman Institute and you're part of these lectures. And it's often a big crowd because it's our cohort of rabbis who are studying for three years in this fellowship program. And RTS rabbis, you know, who are participating in this from all over the country for 10 days. Then you have lay leaders. Then you have teenagers who are studying. So it's often a really crowded lecture space. Um, but we always get to meet with the professors and the, the lecturers as our own cohort, you know, the, which a lot of you know about, the 27 of us who are studying together um, in, in this fellowship program. And so it, same with Malila. So I told Rebecca that this was the lecture I wanted after Malila taught it to us privately. So um, I hadn't watched the public lecture yet. <laughs> like I just went off what Malila taught us, which I thought was just really interesting and a fascinating way into this whole concept of the, the crisis that we're living in, the time that we're living in. I have to tell you that when Malila started, and we were on, we were online with her. It was a Zoom, it was a Zoom class with her. And I'm telling you, the woman started speaking, and within like seven words of her speaking, I started to cry. Malila has this incredible gift of, and and you didn't, and I'm saying this because it didn't come through when I watched the public lecture. It didn't come through as clearly because all of her remarks were prepared. When she sits down with us, she puts her papers down and she looks at us and she says, so no, let's talk. And she just started teaching. And I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about it. She just, she has this incredibly beautiful soul, this beautiful spirit. Uh, I could listen to her speak English and Hebrew all day long, but particularly in Hebrew. She has one of the most beautiful accents I've ever heard. Um, so she, and, and, and several times during her shiur with us, her lesson with us, she started to tear up and started to cry. So it's that level of vulnerability and, and receptivity to, to us and to what's happening and to, and to our interaction. It's just a really beautiful part of, of learn, learning with Malila. If you ever get the opportunity to learn with her in the future, I, I just can't. It's like Michal Goodman. He comes, he comes over the screen really well, but when you're in a room with him, you're just electrified, right, by, by his teaching. So um, I'm always so deeply touched by Malila and her thoughtfulness and her knowledge of our texts and her knowledge of how to talk about things from a 
perspective of our tradition, but that's so in line with what's happening right now. So I'm hoping you enjoyed her lecture. I'm hoping you got a chance to listen to it. Um, and so Malila's whole concept was to look at the word in Hebrew for crisis. And then because she's a text person and loves texts, her, her specialty is the Zohar. She is an early mysticism teacher. So she's teaching the early rabbinic mystical texts. That's her specialty. Is that Hebrew? Because it's a different Hebrew than biblical Hebrew. Um, but so that, that Hebrew is her specialty and those texts are her specialty, but she loves the breadth of Hebrew literature and she includes the Bible in that, um, as, as do we. Uh, and so uh, she wanted to look at the word for crisis and see where it led her. And then she, once she started down that rabbit hole, she went all the way down. Um, and that was her lecture, which I found just really, it, it was a lovely conversation that we had with her, but also with each other. Um, and it was a new framing for me uh, of sort of a way to, to talk about the moment that we're in. Um, if you think about the George Floyd, the days after George Floyd, it's kind of like that was around the time, you know, it was that kind of time when we were having this conversation, when there was, you know, there was um, demonstrating in the streets and other people like wanting to shut that down and other people getting angry about this and getting pissed off about Black Lives Matter or getting pissed off if you don't support Black Lives Matter and then you add the pandemic and then you add the polarization about politics and you just, it was just, it was a perfect, you know, moment to have this shiur, this lecture. Um, and so she, she starts with the word in Hebrew for crisis and then follows all of the occurrences of that word throughout Hebrew literature. And in the case of Emily Dickinson in English literature, right? So, so she, the word in Hebrew for crisis is mashber. And it comes from the, as you know, most Hebrew uh, words have a tripartite root, a three-letter root. We talk about this a lot in Torah study. Um, and the, the mashber comes from the letters shin, bet, resh, the sh, b, r, root, shin, bet, resh, and those letters mean to break. So lishbor, to break. There's an intensified form of those three letters in the PL form. And a lot of people argue that PL, that whole um, binyan, that whole, um, you know, when you conjugate a verb, the kind of verb it is, is how you conjugate it, right? So um, you take the word um, shaval, broke, and then you can intensify it so that it comes to mean shatter. So it's the same three letters, except you pronounce them differently. You vocalize them differently, but it means an intensified form of breakage, which is, in English, we would say shattering. So, so she looks at the word mashber, and it comes, from to shatter, it comes from shatter, but it's not a verb, right? It's kind of the state of, of shatterage. Right, so it's not the shattering; it's the shatterage, right? Which for us would be the word something like crisis. So she takes that word, and then she's going to follow it, so that we see this this word crisis from a very old, very old Jewish perspective. 
And so she talked a little bit about, you know, which kinds of crises are we in? You know, we've named some of them, you know, between racial injustice, between the political polarization, the environment. You know, we're all aware of environmental crisis. We're aware of a health, public health crisis that we're in right now. And so it's easy for us to think, oh, my God, why me? Why us? Why now? And I loved her perspective when she said that um, crisis is part of being human and that we're actually wired to deal with crisis. That our our whole wiring, and I'm sure the shrinks in the room uh, would agree, that we are designed in large part, we've evolved into creatures who who handle crisis, right? And when we handle it decently, then it, it, then we build resilience. Um, but that our whole system, and, it, and even if you think we, when we sit in mindfulness meditation and I talk about dumping cortisol in our thighs, right, because we're ready for fight or flight, because some, you know, used to be if something snapped in the woods and you didn't react, you were saber-toothed tiger lunch, um, and so our systems are still that old in terms of not yet having figured out that not everything that stresses us deserves that rush of adrenaline and that rush of cortisol. Um, so, we're, so we're wired to deal with crisis. And, and unfortunately, the wiring hasn't quite caught up to, right, to, to that we're usually pretty safe. Um, so both of those, I think, are, are true. And I'm, I'm very aware of them during this time. Um, and she said, as the Jewish people, we have lived through our share of crises that we as a people are in, in some ways really defined by, um, defined by crisis. And then what comes out of that? You know, what, what do we do with that? Um, you know, you heard Tirza of Firestone talk about DNA and genetic passing on of PTSD. Um, as you know, I'm, 100% not Jewish by birth. <laughs> so um, it's not in my DNA from that. It's probably from something else. But, um, but that whole concept of we've been formed, and certainly culturally and spiritually, I've been formed by Jewish history, um, and that we are, we are a people who has lived through crisis after crisis after crisis, and we have become a very resilient people as a result of that. So she, she's not looking at crisis just as something bad. It's something real. Uh, and then, and then kind of what, what our sources say about that. So she begins with Emily Dickinson uh, and she says, there is strength in proving that it can be born, although a tear. What are the sinews of such cordage for except to bear? The ship might be of satin had it not to fight. To walk on seas requires cedar feet. So, uh, yeah, a ship made of satin is lovely. <laughs> Unless it needs right to sail um, on rough water. And that requires cedar feet. Um, so, I, so I love that she, she sets it up with Emily Dickinson in American English, this poetry in English. Um, and then she goes to one of the first places that we see uh, this word, mashbeer. So I will share my screen as we go to the sources. So um, we're going to go to Isaiah, where she sees um, this word, vehashever. If you can see that word in Hebrew, it's in bold, same in English, right? Stein hine korotaich, hashod vehashever. 
Two things have befallen you, desolation and destruction. So shever in this case is referring to the breaking of the walls, the breaking, the devastation of the temple and of the first commonwealth. That is what Isaiah is referencing here when he says shever. Then we see Isaiah uh, again say, violence shall no, no more be heard in your land, desolation nor destruction. Again, that word vashever, that there shouldn't be any more shever, is this destruction, a physical destruction of the walls and of the temple. So she talks about it as the first usage of this word, Uh, in Tanakh, and we're going to see it in a minute with Exodus, is something that was whole that now is broken. And one of the most famous ones that we know, of course, is from Exodus 32, where it says, um, right, so uh, Moshe hurled the tablets, the luchot, otam, and he shattered them. This is the... uh, this is that intensified form of the verb to break. And he shatters them at the foot of the mountain. All right. So those are the first images she gives us of, um, of this word as it appears in Tanakh. And so, uh, so th- this first use of of the word is in this sense of something that was whole that is now broken. So I guess what, what I want, one of the things I want to ask is, is there a sense that that's necessarily bad? Is it just a new state of things? Like what, when we say, you know, the tablets were whole, then Moshe shatters them. Do we, do we have any sense that, you know, that that's a word that implies something other than once it was whole, now it's in pieces? Certainly the destruction of Jerusalem, right, carries, uh, you know, some negative connotation. But um, all right, well, tell us, George, one of the shrinks in the room. Well, in the, um, from the text that you said, after the, the uh, destruction and shattering, came, uh, if I were praise and uh, some other word that was used, that they felt better. And the gen- a general principle is that every crisis is an opportunity because it is shattered and you have the opportunity to rebuild. And I think later in the, to create a new map, she says in, later in the uh, text. So all crises are opportunities, is my point. Or isn't there? Isn't the Chinese symbol for crisis something about opportunity mixed with something else? Uh, maybe yin and yang. I'm not sure. But I mean, it's. It, I know that one of one of the things represented in the Chinese symbol for crisis is is opportunity. Um, so you know, so you know, very much a part of you know lots of wisdom traditions. The uh, the other thing I think about is the the breaking of the tablets. Judith, you want to say something first? Yes, I think. I'm sure you're going to get to this, but it seemed to me the most relevant one in this idea of breaking or shattering, not being necessarily a bad thing, was the birthing stool. So we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. I want, to stay, I want to stay with something that was whole that was in pieces now. Um, and what, what comes to me about the shattering of the tablets, um, th- there's a rabbinic tradition that says that God says, Yashar 
to Moshe when he shatters the tablets, which you would think is completely opposite to what the rabbis would be saying in response to Moshe taking the gift from God that God carved and smashing it. But because he smashed those first tablets in response to what was happening with the Egel HaZahav, the golden calf, that is what created the opportunity, if you want to use George's word, that's what created the opportunity for them to be forgiven, for God to learn who humanity really is. Well, and, well, that happened already, but who the Jewish people really are, that we're going to screw it up. And we're going to screw up pretty badly. And it's in that knowledge, that, and if you're going to be heretics like us and say God learns, right, from, from this in the story, then our character God in the story learns that humanity's going to, that Jews are going to screw up really badly. And God has the opportunity to decide, am I still in? Or is this a deal breaker? While Moshe's up here on the mountain with me, they're down there already screwing around. They've already stepped out. Am I in or not? And what is God's answer? Of course, we're going to hear it at Yom Kippur. I have forgiven you. Because Moshe pleads for forgiveness for the people. God forgives the people. And then says to Moshe, you carve the next set of tablets. I'm not giving you another one. You go buy the next wedding band and bring it up here to the mountain. And then, of course, that is the set that Moshe brings down the second time. That is the set that represents the covenant that is still in place today. Yes? That's the symbol of the covenant that has lasted 3,000 years. It's not the first one when everybody was naive and hopeful. It's the second set. That breakage, that shatter allows for everybody to learn something that's going to contribute to the relationship being 3,000 years long. So for me, that, that's, that's a perfect, perfect representation of what George was saying in terms of opportunity. All right. So now let's go to the next way she's going to uh, show that this word is used which was incredibly powerful. You're getting a preview of my Rosh Hashanah sermon. You all can think about how, how it's going to show up. Isaiah 30, 26 is, Moreover, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun shall be sevenfold as the light of seven days. In the day that yud vav binds up the shever of God's people, and heals the stroke of their wound. So here we're getting a phrase, shever amon, the breach of God's people. And this is the breach that we're living in in this moment, is what Malila said, right? That, that this breach happens with humanity and that we are living in such a breach right now. So now we're going to Isaiah 37, 7, where he says, the day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. As when children come to the point of birth, mashber, the koach ayin leleda, but there is no strength to deliver them. So this, this word, this moment right now in Isaiah, 
uh, Malila tells us, is that moment where you're coming to deliver a child ad mashber, to the point of breaking, but there's no strength to push. There's no strength to deliver. Mashber here in Isaiah means that that pain, that breakage just before birth, just before the, the, the baby comes through where the mother feels like she's going to break in half and there's no strength to keep going, that the pain, the exhaustion, all of it is too much. That moment is mashber. Then Rashi is commenting on Isaiah 37.3 that we just read. Unto the breaking, ad mashber, to the point of mashber, to a hardship, says Rashi, that is likened to a woman sitting on the mashber that does not have the energy to give birth. So Rashi here is letting us know that the mashber is not just the moment that Isaiah is talking about, but is the actual stool that women sat on to deliver. It's the actual birthing chair, the birthing stool, was also called mashper. So this idea um, that, that, that breakage, that, that, that sense of, um, that sense of, of, of shattering being taken then into the physical body of a human being, like is this moment right before birth. And Malila talks about this as um, the, the birthing stool and this moment that Isaiah references on the birthing stool, that this image is the most dangerous and the most painful moment of giving birth. It is the potent moment between death and the possibility of life. And that the pain feels overwhelming. The pain feels unbearable and is what has to happen, unless you're like me and have a planned C-section, um, is what has to happen before there can be new life. But it's a perilous moment. It's a dangerous moment. And for many people, it doesn't end in life. For many people, it ends in a stillbirth or it ends in the death of the mother. And certainly when Isaiah would have been writing, it would have been true that that was happening just as often as this resulting in birth and in someone becoming a mother. Um, and so it really, really was, and in many countries still is, if you don't have the kind of health care and access to that that we do, that moment is a moment between life and death. And it's unclear um, what it's going to be on the other side of it. So it's not just all happiness and, oh, just get through this and everything will be fine. Um, it's a real moment of danger and a real moment between life and death uh, and, and something incredibly painful regardless of, of how it winds up. All right, I'll stop here. So is there anyone who wants to talk a little bit about that? Since you heard Malila talk about it, did you have any thoughts when you heard that? Anything you want to share? Robin, are you unmuted? I want to talk about the sound. The, the sound, sound. That, that she talked about that Same protects one. the world, those cries from the women giving birth throughout time between death and life. 
and the crying, the crying out. That's a, you know, the, all of us. <laughs> Everybody. Well, you, you just hit on the Rosh Hashanah sermon. <laughs> um, oh, oh yeah. You're going to do that one. Oh, 100%, mm-hmm. Right. That, that the sound, the sound that women make and. at that moment, right before the breakthrough, that sound comes before the Kaddish Baruch Hu, comes before the Holy Blessed One, and it is that sound that keeps the universe sustained. That's right. It is that sound that saves the world, right. that, that keeps the world from being destroyed, right. from breaking, from, right, from shattering. Right. It's the sound of a woman voluntarily, most of the time, hopefully, um, experiencing that, in order to bring forth new life, that the agony, the absolute sheer agony of that, the danger of that, the selflessness of that is what keeps the sound of the pain of that is what keeps the world going. I think it is one of the most beautiful pieces of, of Torah I've ever learned. Um, Because what it says is, we have the capacity to suffer incredibly when there's meaning right. to that suffering. That the pain, the sound of that cry um, is so powerful that even the Kaddosh Baruch even the Holy Blessed One has no choice, right? But to sustain the world in response to that cry, um, it, is the, it is the willingness of us to suffer and to put ourselves at risk, and now I'm not talking about literal birth, just in general, the willingness and the agony that we're willing to put ourselves through for someone else, and, which is an active kind of empathy, right? When you're ready to take on real pain for somebody else, and or in, because you're willing to go through it because there's meaning in it. That sound of the willingness to keep pushing is, I think that is an incredible teaching about what we human beings are capable of and that that is holy, holy stuff. Willingness, right, to hold pain, the willingness to sacrifice our own safety, to sacrifice the assurance of our own well-being for somebody else, for something else, for a cause, for, for the future, for what isn't here yet. But Robin, say say more from your perspective. Well, I'm just saying it creates a a world for this new life to come into. And and that's what makes it worth all the suffering. So you you create something new from something that causes suffering, which is exactly what's going on right now. Everything's broken. You know, we could say everything's broken and we need to fix it. And and we'll figure out a way, just like when the baby comes. Yeah. Right? And um that and the sound of our agony right now. Right. The the willingness to keep caring enough to feel the pain. Mm-hmm. That agony 
is what sustains, you know, the sound of that agony is what sustains the world. That mm-hmm. comes before the Holy One and, and sustains the world. I think there's something, I'm not sure what my sermon is yet, but it's in there somewhere, <laughs> um, right? Is, is it, if our agony has meaning, it has to have meaning. Meaning. Right? And it has to have something that's going to come out of it, or it's just pain. Then it's just masochism. Right. And, and no wisdom tradition thinks that's a great idea. Right? So... It's obviously pain in service of bringing something new, something else into the world. That's the agony. That's the sound of the agony that sustains this universe before the Holy One. And, and there's something really, um, I want to say it almost redemptive about that, right? That, you know, that if our, if our agony has something that comes at the other end of it, then it's holy. That's a holy sound. Yeah. And shofar will have a different sound for me this year, I think. Right. You know, shofar for me is not, is not just anymore the crying that we're supposed to hear it as every year about sorrow over how we have failed our own standards or the standards other people had for us that they're supposed to have for us, like that we'll be honest and kind and, you know, whatever. The shofar is always supposed to be about our sadness at that. But right this year, I got to tell you, the shofar, which is also the sound of alarm, right? When you wanted to call the Israelites together to go to war, you blew the shofar. Or if there was an emergency, you blew the shofar to get everybody's attention. Um, and for me, there's definitely a sound that's going to be associated with the shofar this year for me around agony and suffering and breakage and shattering and pain and pushing and not knowing what's going to be on the other side of that, you know, really that moment of feeling like you're not sure you hope it's going to be okay, but we have no guarantees, which is the only thing I guess really that keeps us activated and moving forward is that there's no guarantee. If we don't vote, guess what? We don't impact what policies are going to happen in the next four years. We right. So Amy. Yeah. But it's not only call of agony. It's a call to action. So you can feel the agony, but it should propel you forward. Right. So it has to be that you're doing something. In this case, she's pushing, right? And has no, she's exhausted. She has no energy. She feels like she cannot possibly push, right? And that's when you have to push the hardest, right? Because that's the moment. I don't know about that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know. Um, um, but that's what they tell me. Well, of course, to create, to... Um, to create something new, to create something better that, that comes out of that agony or suffering. But you have to, one has to believe that, that we can do that. And, and that's, you know, what the, what the future will hold for us. It will be positive. We can make a positive world from what's happened, what's fallen apart, you know? And so I wonder to myself a little bit, because in the, in the Rashi quote, it's, uh, no, sorry, in the Isaiah quote, it's talking about she has no more strength. Yeah. And right. so it's like, what, what shifts, what shifts that, right? Because I know all of us must have days or moments where you feel like I don't have, as Isaiah says, the koch. I don't have the koch. I don't have the strength. I don't have, I don't have it. I'm depleted. I'm exhausted. What, what is it that moves us, right? That next, 
Hope. Ah, and where does that come from? Belief, believing you can make a difference, believing something can change. You have to. And what about when that's absent? You have to spread the word. (laughs) Right? I mean, I'm... Yeah. Yeah. If you stop believing, then you've given up. And giving up is not an option. I think an optimist, you have to believe. Okay, so I'm not an optimist. No. I'm not an optimist. But but you're not a pessimist. You all don't know me well enough to know I'm not an optimist? No, I know you're not an optimist. Right. So, right, I'm a, I'm a realist. A realist, not Real, a pessimist. Realist, yeah. And realist. so, that things the other way, too. You don't want to be a pessimist. So, you don't want to be, but there are certainly times, right? And I'm really trying to hold this. I'm trying not to skip over it because I'm hearing so much these days about self care and take care of yourself and stay hopeful. And what, and it's like, of course, of course, we want to do that. And there are times right now where it feels like, no. No, I'm sitting down in the middle of the floor and I'm not moving. No, I don't have it. I don't have it. And I think a lot of people are hitting that place right now, existentially are hitting the place of being on the birthing stool at the moment of this kind of agony and saying, I don't have the strength. So it's I mean, a life force, though, that you, if you think of the alternative the life force pushes you on. People will struggle to stay alive under the worst circumstances. And I think we're at that point now where we're at, at the birth canal. And the, yeah, the life we either choose to stay alive or we don't. Well, that's right. Right. So, so I was, cause I was going to say some people don't choose to stay alive. Not everybody makes it sadly. And not sorry. everybody makes it. Okay out the other side either. That's right. Um, Diana, you were going to say something? I was just going to say that um, for me very directly, I remember when I was pushing my daughter out, I said those same words, I can't. And I remember hitting that zero place. I had no hope, no realism, no optimism, nothing. I felt absolutely depleted. And the nurse who was there she she literally inserted her whatever she had into me and she goes absolutely not we're going to do this you're going to push i'm mexican you're russian we'll do it and <laughs> and i really at that moment i don't know what i would have done without her energy she infused it into me so i think in that moment of flatline where we don't have it within ourselves, I think the beauty of pain is that we really turn to one another in a very real way. I'll, I'll give you the $25 for saying that when we're done. I'll, I'll give <laughs> okay. you the money. Okay. Beautiful. Right. So that's where I was going. What about when we don't have it? And we sit down and say, I don't have the koyach. I can't do it. That's when there's a doula or a midwife or your grandmother or somebody who holds your hand and says, we are going to do this together. You're right. You can't do it alone. You're right. You're done. You're toast. You're depleted. You don't have it. You're right. That's why I'm here. 
we can sit down with each other in the middle of the floor and say, I hear you. I get it. And I'm not going anywhere. Till you're ready to get up, I'm going to sit here with you. And we'll eat Doritos and watch a movie, whatever, right? Like, and I think that that is a critical message of the whole business of this crisis business is this is something we often have to do together. We're going to have to get each other through this because we shouldn't be expected to do it by ourselves. That's not Jewish. (laughs) That's just not Jewish. This is not a solo flight. We do everything in community. We do everything together because that's the only way you're going to make it through the really hard stuff. And it's the only way to magnify the really good stuff. What if you give birth in a field and you have this baby? Like, it's a lot more fun when there's a lot of people passing that baby around and ooing and eyeing, right? Like, your joy is magnified when that baby is welcomed into a community. And it takes that community to get you sometimes over that last or the next hurdle, the next moment of saying, Ainley Koch, I don't don't have the strength. I don't have the power. And, And I think it's one of the most important teachings about resilience that Judaism brings to us is there's no shame in saying I can't do it by myself. There's no shame in that as Jews. We're, when we lose somebody, the closest people to us, what are we ordered to do? Be in community to say Kaddish every day. The times we most want to say, I quit, I'm done, I can't, because it was my mother or it was my child, God forbid, it was my sister, I can't. Judaism says that's right. That's why we're going to come to your house. And we're going to say Kaddish with you. Because you have to be with us too bad, so sad. That's how we do this. We do it together. Or or help pick up all the pieces of the shattered tablets. That's exactly right. And what, Linda, what what happened with those pieces? I don't know. (laughs) According to Rabbinic Midrash, those pieces got picked up. Just like you said, those pieces got picked up and put in the ark. They were sacred. The pieces that we shatter into are sacred. And they rode in the ark right next to the whole tablets. And I always have this image in my head whenever we reference the ark and the tablets and all this, I always have this this sound in my, like a sound uh, picture of the pieces rattling around as they're carrying the ark. Like the pieces, the noise of the pieces. (laughs) bumping up against each other and bumping up against the covenant that's still in place. They're both sacred because one can't happen without the other. The tablets that stayed whole, the tablets that are our covenant with, you know, the force, the energy in this universe that we call God, that set of tablets could not have happened without the breaking, the shattering of the first ones. All right, so here we go to Jonah, chapter 2, right? And uh, so Jonah's telling his story, and at verse 4, V'tashlicheni mitzula bilvav yamim You cast me into the depths, into the heart of the sea. V'nahal yisovaveni, and the floods engulfed me. Kol mishbarecha 
v'galecha alai avaru, and all of your breakers and your, I don't know what billows is, but gal means wave. So all of your breakers and all of your waves swept over me. I thought I was driven away out of your sight. Would I ever gaze again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep engulfed me. Weeds twined around my head. And this is a moment that Malila describes as suffocation, where you're going under and the breakers are breaking over you. You know, those waves that like, like, and they turn you all upside down and everything under the water and all the waves sweep over Jonah. And in that moment, when the waters close over him and the deep engulfs him, he is unable to breathe. And we all know that moment where we're close to drowning and we're sure we're not going to find the surface or we're terrified and panicked that we won't find the surface. We're disoriented. Um, that, that moment is the moment here of, of things breaking over Jonah. God, but they're God's breakers, right? So God's breakers break over Jonah's head. He cannot breathe. And Malila says, this is the George Floyd moment. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I'm suffocating. I can't breathe. But she also points to that this is a very, I don't know, I don't think she said it in the public lecture. I'm not sure. But to us, she said that, that Jonah's calling on God from his own depths. And he's calling to God from God's depths, where God threw him into the deep. And that this is a very intimate moment that Jonah is calling to God uh, from his depth and then also calling to God from God's depth. So it's depth meets depth. And that that moment, that, that moment of I, I can't breathe and everything's breaking over me and I'm completely disoriented, that that moment for Jonah of, of reaching out from that place meets the depths of the divine. So that our deepest place of disorientation and suffocation and I can't breathe, I can't do it, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know how I'm going to get back to the top, calling out in that moment is matching the depths of the universe, if you will. If we, if we like some of us, call God universe, right, then, then it's this intimacy from my depths um, in response to God's depths. But this idea of the breakers being that moment where water that is a really strong wave breaks um, and has all of this power behind it, right? It pulverizes rock into sand, right? That's how sand happens over and over and over. The rocks are pounded um, by these breakers that in the next 10 minutes could just be calm water again, right? So that's, that's another image she brings of shiver. Um, and then she shifts into, um, interestingly, that, um, that shiver also in the Jacob-Joseph narratives. Oh, sorry, wait. First she does Psalms, right? Uh, text 9. Tehom el tehom The Here it is. Here's it spelled out in the psalm. Where deep calls to deep. In the roar of your cataracts, all your breakers and waves have swept over me. Tehom el tehom, deep calls to deep. Just really, really 
really beautiful Hebrew. All right. So then interestingly, in the Jacob Joseph narratives, we see another form of this three letter root. Now Jacob saw that there was shever b'mitzrayim. There was shever, corn, grain in Egypt. And right, and then he's going to tell them to to go down and and get grain. Uh, and so um, so in this sense, grain is is sustenance. Grain is food. And she talked about. Um, Shever as grain is food that you buy with money as nourishment. And it always comes in Torah at a time of famine. That's when you talk about Shever is when you talk about famine and people need to get the food that's going to sustain you. Otherwise you hear about crops and harvests, right? And all that. When you hear Shever, it's the grain that you go to buy because you don't have anything to eat. So you have to go get it and, and procure it. So that's the kind of um, the food that shever means. Um, and like not your flocks and your herds, but, your, but shever, grain that you can make into a, a staple of your diet. And she, she talked with us about like, first of all, grain has to break open for you to get it. It's like, why shever? Why is, why is this the word for grain? Like that makes no sense. But in a way, the, the, what is it called? The shaf, the sheaf, the, the something. You can tell how much planting and growing of things I do. Um, whatever that outside thing is, has to break open for the grain, the nut, right? Of the grain to be available for making into nourishment, making into food. And also that the breaking open of the dry earth and seeds going in and then the earth breaking as the seed comes up as a plant, it's all about breaking open. That it's the breaking open that allows life, the seeds of life to go in and then allows the plant, the new life to, to come out of it. It takes the ground breaking open and then it's going to take that whatever that is, um, sheaf or whatever, to break open for the grain to be available as food for us. Uh, and it's the image also that they talk about when they talk about shevil, they're talking about opening the granaries. So if you're talking about famine, the only way you eat in a famine is how? If there's nothing harvest, if you can't harvest anything, how are you going to eat? you have to have stored grain from previous harvests. So in order to eat during a famine, shever is, is the nourishment, but it's also the breaking open of the granary, the breaking open of the silo that holds the nourishment from that last harvest. So this sense, all these senses that Malila brings to this idea of, of what has to open for us to be nourished. What has to open? What has to break open for us to be fed? Um, which is interesting. Okay, Judith, you want to say something? We used to sing a song in my previous life, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. It's a sheave. Thank you. 
I'm so glad that oil. came in handy. Once. I, I think it's one is a sheaf, right? Yes. Okay. But you never just brought in one. No, that would be silly. <laughs> Eileen, Eileen, Chinook, you raised your hand. Thank you. Um, so you said silos, and that just blocked into my head about how we are right now. We're all in our own silos, thinking our own thoughts, in, and not talking cross-silo. So breaking those silos, allowing people to find their commonality among the many, one, having just watched a couple of days ago, Hamilton. I don't know. It's all swirling in my head. And I think there's a story in here too. Well, when it settles into a Rosh Hashanah message, I hope that you will send it to me. <laughs> but right. So I love that. Like that we're all in our silos and what are the times we feel fed and nourished? It's often when we break open those silos and come to a zoom class, we come to Friday night services Right. That right now, exactly. I think we often feel most fed and most nourished when we break open our silos and feed each other from them. Right. Go. You, right. Like you said, all these thoughts are swirling around in our own heads. Well, guess what? When we share those with other people, it's like, huh, somebody else goes, huh, that's food for thought. Right. Like we, that's why we do this together. That's why we do intentional community because otherwise it's very easy to become a silo and only be thinking the thoughts in your own head. Right. And never exchanging those, which is what's so nourishing. And that's what feeds us is that exchange. Well, so first of all, so we've, what have we shared so far? We've shared uh, something whole being broken is one sense of that word. The breaking through point, the birthing stool, the, that moment of, of birth, that's another, the agony of that moment, the exhaustion of that moment is, number, is another one. Then there's this sense of uh, the breakers, the waves that are the breakers. And like when you look at ships that are these massive, amazing things, what are they often taken down by? Right, the power of the breakers, um, and so, so that water that can be still one day and you're out there just hanging out on your raft, right? In the next, in the next day can be a breaker that's going to destroy, uh, destroy things and break things apart. Um, and then we see the shever as nourishment, as this idea of grain, of corn. A sheaf is a bunch of cereal crop stems bound together after reaping, traditionally by a sickle. Well, thank you, Ed Dreyfus for being on that for us. I love that. We have our own researcher, our own private researcher for our lesson. All right. So let me go back to screen share and let's go to source number 12. She, she, she references this story of, uh, of Rebbe Nachman of Bratslav. And um, he, and I won't read the whole thing. Hopefully you got a chance to look at it or heard her chiddish about it. But there's a storm and it's so powerful that it overturns the whole world, changing dry land into sea and sea into dry land, the deserts into inhabited places and vice versa. So all of this craziness, right, is going on. And amidst all the confusion as the princess saw her child being carried away, she immediately gave chase with the queen following after her and the king after the queen until they were all separated and no one knew where the others had gone. So in this moment of panic, 
um, this, then everyone starts to run after the other one. And then now they're all separated and nobody knows what's going on. And then what, what is the response? So, so this, this separation, right? So if you look at the end of the second line in English, the hand, the which is uh, the symbol for the mysterious map, was also lost. Since then, we've all been dispersed and none of us have been able to ascend to our various places to renew our powers for since the whole world have been overturned and confused, blah, 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 blah. It's impossible to go up using the previous paths. Now we would have to go up using new paths according to the rearranging of the world. This amazing story by Nachman of Bratislav. So this idea that, that what's the map? The map is the hand. And all the lines on the hand are the roots that one can take. And then when there's this complete discombobulation that happens, like what's the chiddush? What's the message? Everyone goes running after the other one to save the other one. And then now everybody's separated. Everybody's disoriented and confused. What is the chiddush? What's the, the message I think that she, she's bringing it to us for is that um, is it, the old map is gone. We're going to have to go up new paths, right? We can't use the old paths anymore. They're all obliterated. And so this, this idea that, that we are disoriented, but also that you can't use the old map and you can't use the old path because everything's been rearranged. So when I think about dismantling systemic racism, right, we can't go back to the old map of before the what happened here with George Floyd? We you can't go back. Well, that's an incredibly disorienting moment, isn't it? It's like, well, what do we do to, in, in police departments, right? How, how how do we begin to dismantle systemic racism? Like, really? Like, and as white people, what are we supposed to do? Because guess what? Most of the work is ninety eight percent of the work is ours. It's we who have the issue with racism. Racism is a white person's problem. <laughs> so, so this idea, I love this idea that like in real crisis, if there's going to be real change, it means the old paths are gone. The old maps are useless. You can't direct anything by them anymore. Well, that's both a huge opportunity, to quote our friend George Wolcott, that is a huge opportunity. It is also super confusing, Right? And super disorienting. It's kind of like, well, what do you mean I can't use ways? Like, what? Well, how am I supposed to get there? Google Maps? <laughs> like, what do you mean? What? When they tell me, you know, the PCH is closed, blah, blah, blah. It's like, wait, what? Like, how am I going to, how do I get there then? You know, Topanga Canyon. I'm like, what? So, <laughs> this, like, this. When the, old, when the old paths and the old maps don't work, it's a really challenging, right, situation. Um, so she also alludes to the fact that the hand, right, the, the map is also one, two, three, four, five, the five books of Moses, right? So this is Torah, right? So that, um, but, which is, you know, very interesting. So we could go lots of places with that, right? So you have to, you have to break 
things open for there to be right new paths formed. Um, and she she says, Eve, Rabbi Nachman of Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav said, even at, at the level of psyche, that the psyche, something of the first unity, has to be broken down, has to be split out um, for more things to develop. Collapse and breakdown, she says, is necessary to make space for the new thing happening, but it also has a catastrophic element to it, that both are true at exactly the same time. Bubby? The thing is that, to me, that can also be uh, a time for, like, being energized and creative. At that You know, you're at that crisis moment, but it's like, it can be an aha moment. I mean, you. I mean, it could also be a horrible moment, and sometimes both at the same time, <laughs> right? And one yeah, one feeds the. I mean, one necessitate the other, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. So that so that because creativity can't happen if you're ossified right into the way it's always been. Exactly. And so there has to be some kind of cracking open of the old and the ossified and the stuck and the habitual that there has to be an opening of that or there, there is no creativity, right? Creativity really is, you know, the, the coming out of the habit and the coming yeah. into. You know, That's wonderful imagery. I really like the imagery of that. Yeah. Yeah. Robin. Malila said that there's a crack in everything. And it lets the light in. That's the main part of this whole story. To let, that's right, to let the light in. Everything has a crack in it. How well that's right. The Into the storms it. of life. That's what she said. Exactly. You know, and it's beautiful and it's true. And we have to let the light in. Exactly. Um, and so she... And I remember her asking as part of this lecture, which of the old paths can no longer be used and what new paths need to be found, right? That's part of the work. You know, right. it, we, can, we can hack away at some of the old paths probably and clear them enough to pass, but what, which ones aren't, aren't traversable anymore? And what new paths, right, are we going to have to cut? How do we get courageous enough, she says, for soul-searching, how can our Judaism, the, the world, be flexible and strong enough to figure out which paths we can still use? And how do we find solutions to take us to a new level and to new paths, right? That's so much of the work of reconstructing Judaism. <laughs> See what I did there? So that's a lot of the work of reconstructing Judaism, right? Is how are we strong enough and courageous enough and flexible enough to figure out which of the old paths work? still for us and what are the new ones like we need to forge and 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 are we ready to to get our axe and our whatever else you need blowtorch <laughs> to, to to forge uh the new path um and she says she told us she didn't tell you she told us that nachman started telling stories and he's known for his parables he's known for his stories but she said the reason he started telling stories is because people were not responding to sermons <laughs> Or to Torah study, right? That people quit coming to Torah study and during the sermon, people like, right? And so if people weren't responding to that, how could he 
couch the message in a way that people would respond to. And you saw Bubby. Bubby's like, yeah, I love that. (laughs) So you tell a story. And the imagery and the metaphor of the story can often unlock something, right, that for in Nachman's lifetime, I, I can't imagine, but for some reason, Torah study and, uh, and sermons were not convincing the Jews of it. Um, and so, uh, so, anyway, so I love that, um, that he was somebody who did that. The old paths weren't working. The old methods weren't working. So Nachman of Bratzlov himself did what he's talking about in that story. He created a new way to try to share his message. Um, and in so doing, created lots of, of stories and, uh, and parables. Okay, here we are. Text number 18. This is Moshe de Leon, who wrote lots of the early mysticism that, of course, was placed into uh, a rabbi from the distant past, just like the book of Deuteronomy that we're reading was placed in the mouth of Moshe. So, um, so he's talking here. Um, the heavens opened, and he's talking about the moment of exile. So it's a commentary here on now it came to pass, as I was among the captives by the river Kvar, the heavens opened, and I saw visions of Elohim. So the worst thing that could have happened in the ancient world to the ancient Israelites uh, was, of course, uh, the destruction and the uh, devastation of Jerusalem and of the temple and then the exiling of the people, right? That was, um, that was just tragic if you lived through it. So he talks about the heavens opening. And now because of the exile and the destruction, the building has been moved and uprooted from its place, meaning the temple. And that which was in a special union bound in a strong bond in the mystery of Shemaim, opened, and all the building and the bond was uprooted from its place, and for this reason, that which was concealed was now seen, for there was nothing to protect it. What is he talking about here? So then he says, I saw visions of Elohim like a man who looks in a mirror which shows the whole form. And that which was covered like a fruitful vine in the recesses of her house, whenever you hear her here, who are we talking about? If the house is the temple, who is her? It is, of course, the Shekhinah, the feminine indwellingness of God. This is the feminine aspect of the divine. Um, it's, so like a fruitful vine in the recesses of her house, went forth outside and is seen and revealed in another land on this day. And she noticed the capital S and she descended to Babylon outside of her domain and is seen there. So I know you're asking me what the heck, Rabbi Amy, what the heck? Okay. So Malila talks about the fact that the mythology for the, for the temple was that, of course, those of you who study Torah with me, this is nothing new. The Shekhinah, God's presence, comes down and dwells in the Holy of Holies, right? Well, the Shekhinah is one aspect of God. It's the feminine aspect of God. Moshe de Lyon is talking about Jewish mysticism, so talking about um, the union between the feminine and, because it's a heterosexist world, the masculine, 
So when you have the union of those, it's a very intimate thing. That in a, huh? And it's a loving relationship. And so in the early mystics, the I, so what he's talking about here is this, this idea that the Shekhinah is in the Holy of Holies with the Kadosh Baruch Hu, who's in Shemayim, right? And there's this union between heaven and earth and between masculine and feminine. And that union, that intimacy is private and is in the temple. What happens with the devastation and destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple? It's opened. The privacy of that boudoir is opened, and now the Shekhinah comes out and is seen outside of the temple. So for something, for a new perspective, to be able to see something you haven't seen before, to see the Shekhinah, to have a new perspective, there has to be an opening up, a breaking of something. And if it doesn't break, you can't see. You can't see what's in there till it, till it breaks open. It's secret. So when the, when the Kadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy Blessed One, is in private and locked up with the Shekhinah, yeah, it's beautiful for them. But what about the rest of us? Right? We can't see it. We can't access it until the breaking open uh, happens of the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the Shekhinah's guarded, protected, private hiddenness is what allows us to know the divine presence. So it's not that what came before is bad, but it, if it stays closed up, there's access that is impossible. We can't see it. We can't access it. We cherish unity, says Malila. We cherish unity and we long for it. But sometimes, be it a national dream, a relationship, a theology, that monolithic closed unity needs to break so that we can see things that we've never seen before. And so that we can gain perspective hitherto sealed off from our consciousness. Or... Robin, as Leonard Cohen would say it, there has to be a crack in everything. Otherwise, how does the light get in? So this idea that, um, that unity is something we say we want, and it's something we're attached to, and it's something that we long for. But there's a way that that unity being closed in on itself can be stops other things from happening. So I can remember very distinctly being pregnant and thinking, why would the divine ever move out of this union? Like, why do I have to give her up? I like be carrying her with me wherever I go. And, and I, really, I was really like existentially like stuck in this thing of why would divine unity, why would the divine leave unity to do this craziness, this mess? I don't get it. And then that baby was in the ninth month of growth and thought I was some kind of a barca lounger and like would just stretch and lay herself out. And then I was like, okay, there's not room for both of us in here anymore. Like this needs to come out. Like this needs to get out. 
now. And so, right, so there's this unity that, of course, is beautiful and wonderful, but then there can't be a relationship. And then it was very clear to me. When they handed me to her, first I went, are you sure that came out of me? Are you sure that's mine? These black eyes and black hair, right? I was just like, are you sh- You're positive. Peg said, I saw them pull her out. So they hand her to me. So after my initial, like, you can't be, this can't be her. Um, there was this moment, right, of, of course, she had to be on this side of my belly. Otherwise, I can't love her in actuality. I can only love her in potential, right? Like, I, you can't have a real relationship with something when there's only unity. There has to be separation. There has to be division. There has to be something coming out of that unity or there's no relationship. And, and Malila is this beautiful image of the Shekhinah and the Kaddish Baruch Hu, the unity of the divine locked in the Holy of Holies. Yes, that's a beautiful thing. But then we don't have access to it. We don't see it. Only the priests did. And that's not how Judaism was going to survive. Judaism survived because it, that all got obliterated. And now the Shekhinah is hanging out with us. Now, see that room behind my head? Now that's where she is. And she's in every room like that. And she's in your backyard when you decide to sit down and get quiet and listen for her. She's accessible now because she's not locked up in unity in the Holy of Holies. I mean, I just love that metaphor and I love that image. Okay. So this is a poem by Sivan Harshefi called Moda Ani, which of course some of you may know is the first prayer that we say in the morning when we get up. I give thanks, right, that we woke up, that we're here again today. On those stones of darkness, on the birthing stool, causing me to bleat with compassion. In Hebrew, bechemla. The contraction is a prayer, rhythmic, quick. I descend to the endpoints of mountains, then ascend. All that was closed opens all that was open now closes. The Sidor, for example, lies prostrate. The heart, dilated to four fingers, contracts, expands. They're coming on quicker now. No time for words. The cry is the prayer. Now that I am like an animal in the forest, howling. The heart, dilated to seven fingers, comes clear. With my fingertips, I am already feeling for the sun that is rising. So I would like to imagine that we are at a place where our hearts are seven fingers dilated. (laughs) And we may be howling like an animal in the forest. Um, But I'm, but I'm, trustful that we will together you know, as Malila you know and so many of our brilliant teachers and scholars have given us you know metaphors and teachings about that, that we will hang with the pain knowing that something on the other side is waiting uh, to be born there's a perspective that can only happen once all of this other stuff breaks away and falls away and gets completely discombobulated and we're under the water we're under the breakers uh, and we're on the birthing stool, all of those images which are so powerful. And my, uh, my abiding hope is that uh, it is th- with the destruction of the temple, with the destruction of 
you know, certain kinds of unity comes the possibility of, of new perspectives and hopefully honoring new perspectives and honoring uh, new ways, new ways of doing things. And, um, and we're only going to do that together. That's the only way we're going to get through this is, is together.